Welcome to the Secrets from the Green Room podcast. The author stories you won't hear anywhere else. I'm Emma Gold. And I'm Craig Cormick. And we're supported by the ACT Writers' Centre and Arts ACT. So come into the green room with us and let's see what we uncover. So, Emma, let's have a chat about book tours and things you learned from them because you've just very recently done a book tour for your new novel, The Breaking. And I know from my own experience of doing book tours either in Australia or overseas, what you think they're going to be aren't quite what they're going to be. So what did you learn? Oh, it was really interesting, actually. I had It was exhausting and exhilarating in equal measure. So I, I spent two weeks, I flew into Brisbane and did an event in Brisbane and this was back in March. So everyone was, there were no lockdowns at that time, but everyone was quite nervous. So I only did events in Brisbane and Melbourne. I think if you were doing a tour outside of COVID, you could do a lot more events on the way down. And there were places where I thought, oh, next book, I'd love to do some events in various places that were organized by bookshops and, and in libraries and so on. But as it turned out, I did an event in Brisbane, then spent two weeks traveling down the coast to Melbourne and finished with an event in Melbourne. And I'd also done a bunch of bookshop visits in Canberra. So all up, I think I visited about 60 bookshops. It was organized by my publisher but I basically said to them this is what I want to do these are all the bookshops I want to go to and this is the timing so I obviously had to work out I hired a car in Brisbane and then drove down and I had to work out you know where I was going to be able to stop along the way and then the publisher got all of the contacts and they set up all of that for me which was great because you know that was a huge amount of work and actually Since doing that book tour, my publicist, who we interviewed on an earlier episode in season one, Brendan Fredericks, he said that he keeps getting asked by people, oh, can you do me a book tour like Yuma? (laughs) And he said, oh, I didn't actually have anything to do with that. So that was all organised through the publicist, but I guess in a way came from my initiative and they really supported that. And it's interesting because I was thinking about how I think even maybe five years ago, I would have found it quite nerve-wracking walking into a whole load of bookshops, not knowing the booksellers. But I actually just so enjoyed it. And I think for people who are doing it, and I think it's really an invaluable thing to do for your book to really get it out there. But I think the main thing is to remember, well, first of all, not to just walk in and sign books and walk out. That's not really what it's about. It's actually about talking to the booksellers and developing at least some kind of connection and and relationship with them. And so talking to them about all sorts of things, one of the things that was fascinating for me was that I spoke to each one of them about how they'd been faring during COVID and what the book trade was like for them. I would spend a lot of time just talking to them about books that I'd enjoyed, books they'd enjoyed. I ended up buying too many books, (laughs) as you do, and talking about the book trade. And so from that, there were some things that I learned, even though I work in publishing as an editor. There were just things here and there the booksellers said to me that I thought, oh, I never really thought about it from that perspective before. So, for example, when I was in Port Macquarie, the bookseller there who managed the store was talking about how it's really great when authors come in and do visits because, of course, when you go in and do a visit, 
they then look up your book, which they might not have done, even if they're stocking it. They may not have looked up anything about it. They've got books arriving all the time. So they look up your book, they learn a bit about it. Often they'll do a display of your book, even if it may just be for that week, you'll get a window display. And a lot of the booksellers on my tour, they just did these beautiful displays, which was so gorgeous to walk in and see your book like that. But she was saying to me, you know, sometimes she won't see a book until it's time to return it. So the books come in and if it happens to be on a day when she's not in the store, it might go out onto the shelves and she doesn't see it until it's time to actually send it back six weeks later because it hasn't sold. But, of course, if you come into the shop and they are then made aware of it, they find out about it, they do their display and so on, you're you're actually putting your book into the forefront of their mind so that they will actually talk to their customers about it and they'll know which one of their regulars that would be a great book for. So I think it really brings your book into their kind of awareness in a way that it might not otherwise be. And, of course, one of the real benefits is just making those connections with booksellers, which can just lead to all sorts of wonderful things, aside from the fact that it's just a real pleasure. The other thing that I learnt recently that I didn't know that often gets talked about about among writers, that if you sign your books, then the shop can't return them. So they have to then sell them, which seems like a great ploy to be able to go in and sign your books and they have to sell them. But that's no longer true. So they can now return signed stock and it may, in fact, go to another bookshop. But signing your books doesn't mean they're going to sell them. That's interesting because that always had stood. I've been in some bookshops. I did a tour of the East Coast of America some years ago and when I'd asked, can I sign copies of my books, they'd say, "Um, sign half of them. Yes. And so you knew they were cutting the chances of being stuck with some signed books they couldn't sell. Well, I was talking to a bookseller friend of mine recently and she was saying to me they used to hate it when authors just showed up to sign copies of their books without arranging it first because what they would actually often do when an author said they were coming in to sign books, they would take three quarters of them off the shelf so that they only signed a small number because they didn't want to be locked into having to sell all of that stock. But now it doesn't matter. I know a lot of writers are still operating on the assumption that if they sign a book, it has to be sold, but that is no longer true. It's still great to do, but it doesn't guarantee that the stock is going to be sale anymore. sold. Yeah, absolutely. What's been your experience of book tours? Pretty varied. The small bookshops are the nicest to work with. They're much more personable than the rest of it, but they sell fewer copies of your book. And it's funny because often you go into a small shop and you've got maybe five copies of your book on the shelf. And well, they've had to hunt, hunt around the shop to find them. And you sort of feel obliged to buy a book when you're there. And you're thinking to yourself, so how much does pay for that book? How much am I going to get if I sell those five books? Hang on, I'm walking out here in debt. But yeah, you know, that's that's the reality of the, the business anyway. So it, it does help to be seen. The big, big chains back in the old days of borders and so on, you were just like a product on a supermarket shelf, unless you're one of the big, big selling names. They sort of, uh-huh, mm-hmm, I'll give you three minutes of my time and then next. So it was a huge difference from the, the big, big chains to smaller individualised bookshops. Mind you, I had, like I remember, for example, in one of the Melbourne QBDs, I had a great chat. I spent such a long time with the manager there just talking about the book trade and stock movement and they will often only order in like one copy of a book unless it's a really big name. But then they have an automatic system where if that book then sells, then it triggers an automatic order and so on. 
it is interesting that sometimes you can go into bookshop and they may only have five copies of your book or three copies of your book. But I still think even for those small number, it's actually worth it because you're making a connection with that bookseller and the book. And also sometimes I would go into a bookshop. So, for example, there was one bookshop where I went into and normally I'd be telling people about the breaking and what it actually means in terms of elephant tourism, which is the backdrop of the book. But I remember going to this one bookshop where there was a staff member who she knew all about it. And it was so amazing to talk to her. But also she hadn't heard of the book until I came in. So then she was like, oh, my gosh, I'm selling this book to everyone. (laughs) So it's things like that where you just think, well, had I not walked into that shop? And I think there were only maybe seven copies of my book in that store. But had I not gone and visited that connection wouldn't have happened at all. And you just don't know where those things lead to. Of course, to, so. which one? You've got to be out there trying it. Do. Yeah, so I definitely think it's worth it. It's a lot of work, but I think if you can do a book tour, mm-hmm. it's definitely worth it. Charlotte Wood is the author of six novels and three books of nonfiction, her latest being The Luminous Solution. Her latest novel is The Weekend, which won the 2020 Australian Book Industry Award for Literary Fiction and was shortlisted or longlisted for a number of other prizes, including the Stella Prize and the Miles Franklin Award. Her previous novel, The Natural Way of Things, won a swag of awards, including the Stella, the Indie Book of the Year and Novel of the Year, and shared the Prime Minister's Literary Award for Fiction. So she is absolutely literary royalty, and I could not be more pleased to be talking with you today. Welcome, Charlotte. Thank you, Emma. It's really lovely to be with you. Oh, it's so great to have you. Now, we don't normally focus in on one book on the podcast, but your latest collection, The Luminous Solution, is all about the creative life, not just of writers, but of anyone really, which I love. And it's so rich in ideas that I feel like we could talk for days about this book. (laughs) But I want to start about asking how it felt to put this out into the world, because I know that even though the chapters have mostly all been previously published in one form or another, collecting them all together like this gives them a weight and, you know, a single window into you and your creative life. So has it been nerve-wracking revealing so much about your inner self in that way? It wasn't until people started telling me. (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, as you said, the pieces were, well, you know, the chapters that I'm calling them now started life, almost all of them, in published some form or other. But Almost entirely they were rewritten, sometimes only like a paragraph of the original piece remained and then I added new stuff because, you know, over 20 years or whatever that I've been writing them, my opinions changed on quite a few things or I thought that I hadn't really expressed what I meant well enough before so I'd rewrite and refine and recalibrate and then bring in new things that I'd had insights about in the meantime. So it was a really great process actually of sort of looking at everything I had ever expressed about the creative impulse, my creative impulse, I should say, and seeing if I still believed it, if it still felt true, and then what else might be there to say about these things. And it's funny, people quite frequently say to me, oh, you're very honest in, you know, when you speak or when you write nonfiction. And I always get a bit taken aback (laughs) thinking, why? What was I supposed to do? You know, I and actually a couple of artists have been really, I have a painter friend who, who seemed very unnerved by the book and by my willingness to talk about 
the kind of detail of the intimate creative process, I suppose. And I think that's because he's very private about his creative impulse. He seemed to indicate that he thought I was doing something. He kept saying, you're so brave. <laughs> now, you know, when anyone tells you you're brave, it's time to start worrying. <laughs> but, you know, I sort of, I think I've always been quite open about how I work. Although, you know, there are some chapters in the book that talk about times, especially in writing The Natural Way of Things, where I'd go through some real difficulty in my writing life, I guess. But I, I found it interesting to look at that and think, well, what was that about and why did that happen and how did it play out and how has it affected what I've done since? So I find it very interesting rather than scary, I suppose. Yeah. And I wonder if, do you think that your friend was unnerved also partly because there is this idea that the creative process is somehow kind of magical and that in delving into it, uh, I don't know, it's almost like it might destroy it or something. Mm, I think there's definitely a feeling like that. I suppose my overarching opinion about the creative process is just do it however it works for you. And I would never presume to say, well, you should be more open about your process or you should do it this or that way. I hate it when people sort of make rules about what art is or how work should be done. And sometimes, you know, when I used to be on Twitter, there'd be quite a few commandments issued all over the place. You must write every day or you must plot first. You know, there's so many of them. And quite often I would think, well, who are you to know, <laughs> you know, because quite often those sorts of commands are issued by people who actually don't have a lot of experience. And the longer I go on, the more I see that my way of working changes all the time. And I feel that that's a good thing for me. I've had a couple of people contact me about the book. One writer in particular who said that he realised how superstitious he was about his writing life and that the book had sort of challenged him to open up his thinking about it and maybe try some different things and I thought that was interesting because I think writers are very superstitious and I feel I'm quite superstitious myself but I don't like it when that locks me into a certain way of working. Yeah I don't like to think of myself like that but I catch myself sometimes <laughs> doing things that are. Were there any essays that you went back to and revisited where you thought I just don't believe that anymore? I know you were saying your thinking had changed but was there anything you went back to where you thought no I would include that because I just don't believe that anymore? Where something had changed so radically? Not really radically in that way. Well there are quite a lot of things that I'd written that we didn't include in the book just because they seemed a bit off topic, really. And there were quite a few profiles of artists that I'd written that I really liked, but in the editorial process, we decided that they were too sort of external when this book was supposed to be about, really about my way of working and my way of working that was drawn from other people's ways of working a lot of the time. So there are lots of references to other artists and what I've learned from them, but profiles, the portraits of artists that I've published here and there over the years, we did set aside because they didn't, maybe they didn't tonally fit as well. Look, I don't think there was anything that I thought, oh no, that's a lie. I don't believe that anymore. But certainly there were a lot of things that I thought, mm, I think that's sort of right, but it's more complicated than that. Or that's right, but there's also this other thing at the same time. So I guess I added more than I changed, if that makes any sense. Mm. And has 
releasing this book been any different to releasing your novels in that it's obviously a very personal book but has it been a more or a less vulnerable space to be in because releasing a book is always a kind of vulnerable experience look in a way I think it's been less vulnerable because weirdly enough I find writing non-fiction even if it's quite personal oddly less exposing than publishing fiction which might seem weird but I think it's to do with fiction. You never know if it's worked until it's out there. (laughs) Whereas most of these pieces had been, as we said, published in some form or other, or they had been rewritten them, rewritten them. It wasn't like a whole new, you know, egg (laughs) that I just laid. And I really enjoyed the process of bringing it together. Although what was really different was rewriting this book and then publishing it in a pandemic which I had not done before, and anyone listening to your podcast who has published, especially first books, into the COVID pandemic, I just salute you because it is really, you know, there's so much anxiety around anyway, there's so much noise around, and you just, you're at one remove from everything. So even doing events, you know, normally we had a six-week book tour planned where you're sitting in the room with people normally, but then when they go on to Zoom, You just feel just, even though it's been amazing to be able to do that, it does push you away from the people you're speaking to and I find that quite stressful. Yeah, it's totally different, isn't it? Because my novel was released in March so I was doing Zoom things and you just don't have a sense of how people are reacting to anything that you're saying. It's quite an odd space. So it's not until you sort of finish that you really get people's reactions and then you think, oh, okay. That's right. You don't get that feedback all the time as you do when you're normally in a room with people especially in conversation with a person when you're sitting side by side you can there's all kinds of non-verbal cues and you can interrupt each other without it being so clunky that it sort of does become on zoom but it's also been an amazing bit of technology that if we didn't have it it would have been much more isolating Yeah, has definitely kept us connected. Talking more about publicity, in The Luminous Solution, you talk about the tension between the need for public exposure to get your book out there when it's released, whilst also experiencing, in a way, a fear of that public exposure. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how you manage that tension? Yes, it's a real tension, isn't it? Because I think most writers at heart are introverts. You sort of have to be, in a way, to sit in a room by yourself and have your whole professional life kind of conducted alone really even though you know there's quite a bit in the book about sort of finding your tribe of fellow makers as well and how that can be so sustaining and it has been for me but there's a chapter in there where I start off talking about Lily Briscoe in Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse where she's painting her painting and she's kind of sick with terror that somebody will come along and look at it while she's making it. And at the same time, she's kind of excited by that thought that someone will look at it. And that's what kind of led me to think about this tension between the kind of terror of exposure but the desire for that exposure at the same time. And it is a strange phenomenon where you sort of have to switch your own persona to cope with the exposure I think and I think introverts do find public scrutiny really quite stressful I certainly do even though you know I kind of enjoy it at the same time often but you know being sort of publicly evaluated 
for your work is it's demanding and I think until you've done it, it's hard to understand how it can really affect you. So the way that I deal with it, I guess, is once the book is out there, to try and separate from it really as much as possible sort of internally for myself. And I've often said to, you know, when I've been mentoring or teaching newer writers, my kind of baseline opinion is that once a book is published, it's kind of none of your business anymore. You know, it's not yours. You don't own it. You certainly can't control anything that happens to it. You can't control what people think of it or of you. So, you know, sometimes people get bad reviews or whatever and they write back, you know, it's just obviously the worst thing you can do because you just, I think not just because you look sort of defensive, but it's such a waste of energy. I would rather put that energy back into my new project. So I try and separate my sense of self from what other people think of it. And that's really hard, but it's kind of essential. You do have to develop your own internal self-scrutiny. And I love there's a really beautiful documentary available on, well, bits of it are online, but you can get the whole thing from the National Film and Sound Archive of Rosalie Gascoigne, the artist. Uh, amazing. Canberra Monero-based artist, not with us anymore, but she says in this documentary, when I put up a show, all I need is for it to be self-respecting. And I'm very tough on myself and I have very high standards, but once I feel that it's self-respecting, then what other people think is of no relevance to me. I kind of aspire to that state. I really recommend the documentary. It's only about half an hour or something, but it's got so much to inspire and console in it. And that sort of really strong trust in her own artistic impulse is very, very heartening. And it's something that I try to emulate, fail mostly, but, you know. It's a wonderful concept yes. of the work being self-respecting. Yeah. I love that. And then what other people make of it is sort of neither here nor there because you've got your own measure and it's hard to develop that measure, but I do think it's essential. And the artists that I most admire seem to me to really have very strong internal measure of their work's worth. Fascinating. All right, we can all aspire to that. Um, so let's talk a bit about the writing process. You've talked, and a lot of other established writers have also talked about this, about how every time you start a new book, you have no idea how to write that book or how to proceed, I think is how you said it. And that you once found that state of unknowing horrible, but now you actually find it comforting. Can you explain why and how you made that mental shift? Was it partly just time and sheer volume of the books that you've written? It probably is. I mean, I still find it horrible, to be honest with you. It's never comfortable. You know, I'm having it right now with the new novel that I'm working on, just thinking, God, why can't I make this work? And why don't I know how to do this? And there's a sort of feeling of slight shame that you think, come on, you've written six novels. Why the hell don't you know how to do it? Well, awards are a whole other thing. But you think, well, you've got this experience. Why haven't you learned from it? And, of course, you have learned from it. There are lots of things that I've learned, but not enough to help me write the next one with any sense of ease. But I do know now that if I had a sense of ease, there might be something wrong. So I, I quote in the book Philip Roth, who talks about this looking for trouble. He said something like, if I feel a fluency early on, 
I know there's something wrong. Whereas if you're looking for what's resisting you, you're looking for, for difficulty. And if it's too easy, then I'm in trouble. Whereas being in the dark from moment to moment is what convinces me to go on. But I have to keep remembering that every damn day. It's so frustrating to go, this is okay. And it's because hopefully you're trying something new. You know, you're not just replicating what you've done before. I never want to do that. Even if other people might think, oh, this book's like the same as that one, and it might be true, my experience of writing it is different. And I'm trying different things in form or in sort of different technical challenges for myself that other people wouldn't even notice or care about, but they often are the things that drive the kind of interest from day to day. I love that idea of looking for trouble, and I wish I'd known about that at the start of the book that I've just finished writing because I found that intensely difficult at the beginning. How long does it normally take you before you get past that discomforting stage when you know, okay, I've got something here and I actually know what I'm doing now? Is it different for every book? (sighs) I feel like it never actually comes. (laughs) (laughs) But look, the first draft for me is the really hard struggling in the dark phase. Subsequent drafts are kind of iterative and more and more refining and solving the problem. So there's a concept discussed in The Luminous Solution that's called problem finding. And that's kind of what Philip Roth was alluding to with this looking for trouble. And it it means sort of taking some time to discover what the central sort of problem of the book is. And then only once you've discovered that problem can you set about solving the problem. So for me, the process is usually the whole first draft, which this can go on for years, is a process of discovering who's in the book, whose story it is, where it is, what it's about, but only in very vague terms. So I'm sort of nearing the end of a first draft of my current novel in progress. I won't even really know what it's about until I get to the end of that draft. And then I go, oh, okay, so this is a book about, you know, whatever, loneliness. So then I have to go back and go, right. So if it is a book about loneliness, all these things don't belong. These things do belong. It's almost like there's just a faint outline of what it's about. And then the next several drafts are are really working into that shape and, and giving it sort of roundedness and life. And I've used to say that being a fiction writer is like being a sculptor, having a lump of clay, and then you're sort of carving it, paring it back, shaping it. But first, we have to invent our clay before we even have something to shape. So that clay inventing part for me is the hard part. You know, Helen Garner has said somewhere it's like dragging great shaggy ropes of seaweed out of your guts. <laughs> <laughs> I really responded to that. It does feel like that. I mean, I don't like the kind of romanticization of difficulty but I also acknowledge that it's very hard. It's hard to write, to invent something and make it work. So I don't shy away from the fact that it is hard, but I also am really not into the whole tortured artist myth. Now, talking about difficult processes, I know that with The weekend, you received the inaugural fellowship at the Charles Perkins Centre at Sydney Uni to develop and write that book. And then, of course, that comes with a great pressure to deliver a book 
And at one point you completely stopped writing because you hadn't found the engine of the story, which even reading about that makes me almost have palpitations because I just think that must have been so difficult. You talked about it as abandoning ship. How hard was it to do that? Well, once I made the decision, it wasn't hard, but it was hard to make the decision because I'd never done that before. And that kind of stepping away is a really legitimate part of the creative process. And there's a chapter in the book called The Grumpy Struggle and The Luminous Solution, which is where the title comes from. And that's a quote from an American writer called Janet Burroway. And that chapter discusses these nine creative ways of thinking that I discovered in some doctoral research I did. And one of those ways of thinking is called suspending and waiting. But I'd never really done that before. I'd never stepped away from a book entirely, intentionally. So, of course, I'd like all of us, I'd had to stop writing to earn some money or, you know, deal with family stuff or do other things. But my book was always still kind of ticking away in my mind, whereas at that point of writing The Weekend, frankly, I think I was also probably just a bit burnt out from all the public talking about the natural way of things, which I was still doing a lot of. But I did just hit the wall with the book. I couldn't figure out why. The Weekend is a novel about three friends in their 70s with this sort of scratchy friendship, spending three days in a house together at Christmas and sort of butting up against each other and old irritations and wounds and things. And I had all the kind of, you know, I had a lot of the machinery of the book going, but I had no reason for them to be there. And the problem was that, well, if they're so scratchy and annoyed with each other, why are they even there? You know, what's keeping them there? And I just couldn't figure it out. And, you know, I think there was a bit of internal pressure. Nobody at the Charles Perkins Centre ever pressured me about the book, but I felt a great responsibility because I was the first person to, to take up this incredible opportunity and I wanted it to be available to other people after me. So I felt like this has to work. I can't disappoint these people, you know, who put so much faith and, frankly, given a lot of money to do this thing. Anyway, so I just thought, okay, I'm having six months away from it. And that meant not even thinking about the book, not doing that sort of noticing as you walk around the street, you know, thinking, oh, I can use that in my book. And that woman looks a bit like... Jude and look how she's, you know, holding a handbag or whatever. No noticing, no note-taking. And did you write something else during that time or you just took time out? No, I took time out. We did travel to Europe and I did, I was still talking about the natural way of things a couple of times there because it was being published internationally then. But I might have done a bit of teaching or something. I can't really remember. But I think in the book, I say, you know, I did things like cleaning out cupboards that had been very... <laughs> in need of that for a long time or getting all those boring household things that you just leave when you're busy, like getting the leak in the roof fixed or whatever. So I was quite productive in that sort of way, but it was a completely different mindset. But then after six months, I just thought I've got to go back. I still had no solutions. I had no faith that it would work, but I didn't want to let it go altogether. And I got that feeling that I'm, I'm sure you've had and other writers listening will have had when you just miss it it's a sort of home to go to and another friend of mine Chris Olson I think calls it writing sick you know you just need to go back and so I went back and it still wasn't working it was still the same <laughs> but just pushing through 
just turning up, basically turning up and having faith that something that would reveal itself. And it quite quickly did. I finally figured out, oh, it's their dead friend Sylvie's house and they're there to clean it out for sale. So it suddenly gave it some purpose to their being there and also a sort of layer of meaning to their difficulties with each other, which is that they were in grief. So then fantastic feeling. It's like being in a car that's, you know, that you can't start, you know, that kind of and it and just finally turning the ignition and it kicks into life and it, that is a moment of enormous relief. So I'm kind of looking forward to that happening again at some point. <laughs> And maybe all that cleaning of cupboards somehow subconsciously led you to the actual solution about Sylvie's house, you never know. It could well have done. And I do think the unconscious and the subconscious is crucially important and letting it do its thing is really important. I've just read Helen Garner's new diaries. I can't wait to read that. It's pretty amazing. I'm interviewing her about that next week. She quotes from an interview with Don DeLillo where he talks about a writer needs to drift around to go and have coffee and make a phone call and and then when you go back to the desk, something's there. I mean, I'm sort of in two minds about I do think the drifting allows stuff to show itself. But, you know, a, a lot of the luminous solution is about the tension between that dreamy, drifting subconscious and allowing the gifts to descend from the unconscious, the tension between that sort of thinking and the disciplined routine, thousand words a day, just sitting there, bum on the seat approach. For me, both of those approaches are really essential. So at some point in the writing process, usually you will share your work with other writers and editors and you talk about in The Luminous Solution how that can be a highly risky exercise that you have to do at the right time. It has to be the right reader, which I think is so true. So how do you personally know when the right time is and how do you identify the right reader? I know you have a great bunch of writing friends. Well, I do have this great bunch of writing friends, sort of three or four or five people who I don't give it to all of them at once, but over time I might ask one to read it and then another one at a different time. The time has changed as as I've gone on. It's been later and later in the in the piece that I will share the work, and that's just because I I have more stamina now. Very early on, what I wanted to do was share the work pretty much every few pages and go, "What do you think? Is it okay? Should I keep going?" And I think that's a sort of natural impulse of the beginner, but I think it's really essential to get past that stage because what you really need as an artist any kind of artist or maker of any kind is self-reliance and to start developing this thing we talked about before this self-respecting measure so what I will do now is I will never show anyone my first draft and I will do a second draft at least maybe three drafts before I will ask somebody to read it and usually the asking someone to read it is because I've really hit the wall and I can't do any more. And sometimes it's just, it gives you a natural break from it. But other times I think there's something wrong in the third inner part and I just can't, I can almost see what it is, but I can't see it. And then that, the conversations that happen after the person has read it 
uh, where often the solutions really come and it's sort of that can be so enthralling and rich and beautiful. But usually it's because the people that I will trust and ask to read my work are not the sort of people who say, well, that character doesn't belong and you should get rid of them and put this in and you know, change that. What they will say is, what's going on with this character? I don't understand the connection between that character and this thing or you know, the place or whatever, or some much more ethereal thing. So that process, their reading then results in a really complex conversation where they will ask me questions generally. And that's what I would do for them as well. So then you, you sort of talk out your own solutions. But sometimes it's only by, for me, by talking it out that I go, oh, that's why that thing needs to be there or doesn't need to be there. Or the connection is suddenly made clear. I love that part of the process. I love it. I love it too. It's actually invigorating when you have those conversations about work. It's just one of the things I love the most. But don't you think it's only when you you have the right person? Oh, absolutely. The wrong person can just, even if it's sort of a conversation full of praise, if it's the wrong person, it can just easily send you down the wrong track. And that's why I think sharing work too early is dangerous because you might say, look at this, and there's a bit in it that you're not really that interested in and you're sort of thinking, I'll get rid of that at some point. But your reader in that early stage might go, oh, I love that bit particularly. And you think, oh, I wasn't really that interested in that. But, oh, okay, that means that's the main thing, that I have to ditch all this stuff that I'm really interested in and go for this thing that will interest others. And I think that really rarely works because you don't care about it. So I think that you need to develop a really strong sense of what you are interested in. And then over time, the readers that I have can tell that and they might say, look, I know that this part is really important to you, but I can't really see why yet. So why don't you figure out why you that's so important to you? And then it will work. At the moment, it's not working because it's not clear. It's not resolved enough. Having those kind of readers is just an absolute gift. It really is. Yeah. So I'm interested to know you're fascinated by other artists' creative processes and I think many writers are. I'm endlessly fascinated. Is there a writer's routine that you particularly admire? Not particularly. I used to be much more devoted to those sorts of rules about how many words a day and what sort of approach you should take and all of that. And now I just do whatever works on the day. And I'm sort of becoming, I guess, looser and I'm also slowing down, which does not please me, but I think it's sort of necessary. And I think it's I've, I'm learning to pay more attention to that dreamy, unconscious stuff, which is it's not very comforting because it's very mysterious. It puts you in that state of unknowing all the time, all the time, but it's also the most interesting state for me. So I guess I'm I'm sort of loosening my grip a little bit on things like routines and word counts and all of that, even though I really want to. <laughs> I want a good word count, but at the moment I'm just going very slowly. What I did learn with the natural way of things, I think, is that the book will tell you how to write it if you listen and if you pay attention. If it seems to be saying you have to go slowly, then sort of resisting that is just pointless because if I rush it, 
it's not going to work. Whereas another, a friend of mine who's traditionally written very slowly, very carefully, is now in this flood of a sort of just pouring out this new book and it's kind of freaking her out and also filling her with absolute joy because it's so pleasurable and so abundant. And she said, well, it's telling me how to do it and I just have to go with it. And I think we often spend a lot of time and energy resisting the impulse of this project quite often because it's different from the way you did a previous book. So I'm, I hope that I'm learning to trust that, listen to the voice of the book. I mean, it sounds very kind of hippie and mystical and I'm not a hippie, mystical sort of, you know, I feel like I'm quite a sceptical person in general. But I also think art comes from a mysterious place and learning to trust that that's a good thing is, for me, it's been really a part of sort of maturing as an artist, I think. Well, let's move from the creative to the practical now and talk about your submission to the Parliamentary Creative and Cultural Industries Inquiry. And you outlined in that a typical writer's life in 2020. You quoted the figure that we often hear about a writer's average income being 13000 a year, but then you note that for writers of literary fiction, it's actually closer to 4000 a year, which is obviously even more shocking. And I love how you talk about how Richard Flanagan, just prior to winning the Booker Prize, was about to take up truck driving to make ends meet. And Melissa Lukashenko, before winning the Miles Franklin, was working as an Uber driver. So writers are used to having other means to support themselves. And you go on to point out that combining all those income sources, the median total gross income for writers in 2015 was still only $35,000 a year. And with the pandemic, I mean, that must have dropped dramatically because festivals and events and teaching opportunities and school visits and all those things have just fallen. I mean, some of it, as we talked about, have gone via Zoom, but so much of it has fallen away. So what do you think should be done to better support writers who are really under-supported? I think writers should be given money, basically. And we should be supported in the way that all kinds of other industries are supported. There's an awful lot of money given to business, which writing is. Everyone who's a writer is a self-employed sole trader. And I think, I don't know, there's a perception from governments and all kinds of people that it's a privilege to write. I actually think it is a privilege to write. But that because you do it regardless of money, then you shouldn't get any money. <laughs> I also think people really overestimate the amount of money that writers earn. And I often will explain to readers that if you buy a book for $30, the writer gets $3. And people are often shocked by that. I think they don't really understand how the economics of it work. So I think funding for the arts should, of course, be massively increased. But I also think in Australia, and especially right now, we're dealing with a government that not only doesn't care about the arts, but is actively hostile towards the arts and artists. So they don't want us to have a comfortable life. And when I say a comfortable life, as you've noted, most writers, even with all their sources of income, are living on less than the minimum wage. So writers are very, very, very good at living on nothing. But that also leads to an enormous amount of strain and stress and I think it leads to a huge amount of anxiety and depression, which is a very uncreative state. So 
the Australia Council needs more money, the ABC needs more places that employ artists and give money to artists to work. We need lots more of it, but I don't think it's going to happen. So in the meantime, I don't know, to be honest with you. I don't know how artists are going to support themselves, but we have to learn to support ourselves because it's not coming from anywhere else. Mm. It's a depressing reality. That doesn't seem to change. Mm. Maria Chamarkin's address last year where she was talking about, you know, how do we convince the culture that the arts are important? And her answer was, we don't. Forget about it. Just go do your work. And I found that enormously liberating and freeing (laughs) to think, stop struggling against this stone in your path. Just go around it. Then you don't waste all your creative energy trying to convince a culture that doesn't want you that it should want you. Just get on with your stuff, which is, of course, easier said than done. Yeah, true. But in times of difficulty, like we've seen during the pandemic, people turn to the arts and yet artists were the least supported during the pandemic. But everyone was turning to books and television and, you know, so on. Music, it's what feeds us. Yes, it is what feeds us. And yet there's a perception that, you know, I've worked at the Australia Council, even within arts funding organisations, that writers particularly are already supported by publishers. Now, when you, you know, when you hear that cover price thing, it's like, well, we're not really supported by publishers. (laughs) My publisher is wonderful. I have nothing but gratitude and praise. But the, the model of publishing means that writers earn very little money. And my argument in the Australia Council, which allocates hardly any funding to writers, and that's within the arts organisation, my argument is, yeah, well, actors are supported by theatre companies. Painters are supported by galleries. But actually, you know that they're not, that they need other sources of income. So I'm really kind of mystified as to why literature is so sidelined in funding decisions. For a long time, it's made me very, very angry. And now it's just made me very weary. And so I'm sort of just stepping away from advocacy about writers' incomes because I feel like I've been beating my head against this wall for 30 years and (laughs) I'm tired. It is. It's exhausting, exhausting on top of everything else that writers are dealing with. And it takes a lot of your creative energy and I don't have time to, to waste my creative energy anymore. Well, let's talk about something fun now. We haven't been in green rooms much in the past couple of years, but you have been in a lot of green rooms in your time. Is there a particular experience that stands out for you as particularly funny or embarrassing or delightful? Oh, they're such weird places. They are. (laughs) I often come away from a green room experience laughing about, you know, the sort of vanities of people. The difference between someone's private behaviour and public behaviour I always find completely fascinating. So you might see a writer on stage who audiences adore for their humility and their vulnerability, and yet in the green room they've behaved very rudely to, you know, the (laughs) volunteers or they've been quite a prima donna about, you know, some aspect or other. And I just think, wow, if only the audience had seen that side of you instead of what you're putting on stage. But that said, I think, in general, the writers I've met over the years, in general, are really nice people. They're quite odd. A lot of us are pretty weird and very socially awkward and all that kind of stuff. But there's not 
a lot of malice or I don't think, I think there's a huge amount of anxiety and in green rooms, a kind of anxious place because everyone, you know, you feel it's nerve wracking to get up and speak in front of people, especially among younger writers, I think. And I certainly, I'm sure I was in this boat myself. There's a sort of competitive energy. What I love about getting older is that that all just drops away and you run into people who you once had this sort of mild, low level sort of resentment about, you know, their success or whatever and then you realize we're actually all in the same boat we're just struggling along in this little kind of leaking boat (laughs) once you recognize that it's it's lovely and it's fun well charlotte i feel like i could ask you another hundred questions but i'm going to ask you our final question that we ask everyone which is what have been the best and the worst moments of your career to date oh my goodness i think well, this is kind of interesting because it's the best and the worst. When my second book was rejected by the publisher, I got a massive shock because I assumed that publishing the first book would be really, really difficult and it turned out to be bizarrely easy. And so then I thought, oh, well, that's good. I'm fine <laughs> now, you know. Uh, what I learned, which is what so many people <laughs> learn, mm. is that there's no plain sailing after publishing one book. So the rejection of the second book sent me into a state of absolute sort of terror and despair and grief. And, you know, I mean, when I look back, I'm really quite embarrassed at the scale of my emotional meltdown. But I felt like my, my future was being taken away from me, you know. But, of course, that led to two things. First, it led me to my publisher, Jane Palfreyman, who has been my publisher ever since and who I owe everything to and I will never not publish with her as long as she keeps wanting my work and is just the best person for me to be working with. But the other thing is it showed me very early on in my career that none of this is inevitable. You're only as good as your last book and your ability to participate in this life is a privilege and you cannot, you have to find other reasons for doing it other than public admiration. And those other reasons are, you know, the discovery and the pleasure in, in learning something about yourself. Just the pleasure of making is why you do it. I learned that early on and I'm really glad that I got that shock early in the piece because I'm sure another one will come and I will survive it. But other than that, I think the best times are just those moments when when you make those connections that you've been really struggling to make where you sort of you're in this tunnel dark tunnel trying to sort of feel your way and understand how all these bits of you know your weird unconscious brain are going to turn into something and then ah you see it you mm. see the connection and I that's when it's thrilling you know that mm. that sense of discovery that's kind of why you do it I think well that's why I do it yeah and hopefully that is a possibility for the rest of my writing life that's the only thing you can depend on is you're seeking out that solution and finding it all the rest publishing prizes all of that stuff is just none of your business as I say but the stuff that is your business is the really great fascinating endlessly fascinating process Mm. Well, that is a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Charlotte. It has been an absolute delight talking to you. 
Thank you, Ian. I loved talking to you. Secrets from the Green Room was recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Numbri peoples, never ceded. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes, which helps others to find us. And you can contact us via our website at secretsfromthegreenroom.com, where you'll also find links to us on all the socials, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Come join us. <laughs>